my name's uh, Gino Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. And today we're going to talk about uh, substance misuse and the impact of COVID-19. With me today I have my colleague, uh, Sarah Cahill. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself, please? My name is Sarah and I'm one of the Chief Pharmaceutical Officers Clinical Fellows and I'm based at the RPS this year. And before coming to the RPS, I was a hospital pharmacist. And today I'd like to introduce two, uh, two exciting guests, experts in the field in the area of substance misuse. First, I can introduce uh, Dr. Amira Gerges. Amira, can you give us a brief background to who you are and where you, where you currently work? So I'm the MPharm program director at Swansea University Medical School, and my expertise is in the area of novel psychoactive substances, drug detection and drug education. And uh, Roz, can you introduce yourself? Thank you. So I'm Roz Gittins. I'm currently the director of pharmacy for Humankind, which is a national third sector provider of various things, um, but including substance misuse services. We're really grateful for you to take the time today. I know you're very, very busy. Okay, so is there an increase in propensity for people who use drugs to attract and transmit the virus that leads to COVID-19? I think this is a quite an interesting uh, subject with respect to HIV and, and hepatitis. If we think about using drugs and about the settings where drugs are used, there is an increased risk of attracting and transmitting uh, the virus that leads to COVID-19. So sharing drugs and sharing paraphernalia, um, cannabis joints, um, any other devices, uh, notes and keys that are used in uh, drug administration among this group can be a big issue in terms of attracting and transmitting the, um, the infection. Also, the various routes of administration that are used for in drug taking. So for example, like vaping, snorting, inhaling, smoking, that can also increase the risk of uh, getting respiratory infections and the types of drugs as well. So, for example, uh, using opiates and opioids can lead to respiratory depression. Uh, using MDMA can compromise the immune system. Vasoconstrictive drugs like methamphetamine can also lead to uh, lung injury as well. Um, if we also think about tobacco smokers as well, uh, or heroin or crack cocaine users, again, there is an increased risk of respiratory illnesses in this cohort. I'd certainly add to that. I think that increased complexity, the comorbidity, particularly respiratory disease, certainly adds to that risk. I think there's also something around wider health and social care needs as well. So thinking about nutritional intake and, and just access to treatment services, as well as the conditions that people may be living in as well. And there's been some issues with providing uh, services in certain parts of, of the UK, but what are the unintended consequences that could result from supply disruptions? Amira, what's your view on that? Because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown that has been imposed, uh, like in, in so many countries, the, the logistics of distribution uh, of illicit drugs have been uh, affected. Also, the, um, the supply chains have been affected. And this may lead to drug shortages, reduction in, in purity and increasing prices. And this can be like a vicious circle. So people who use drugs may not have enough drug and may panic. So may stockpile, may start to think of substitution. And substitution can be actually going online and trying to buy something online or uh, going to the pharmacy and buying something like uh, an OTC. Stockpiling can lead to overdose uh, or can lead to uh, various types of crimes. Uh, also, there is an increased risk of uh, acquisitive crimes because there is a need for money 
to from that dealing to to get the drugs being scared of the covid-19 can lead to uh, declining mental health as well and can lead to other various physical uh, symptoms as well uh, not finding the drugs because of the scarcity of the drugs may lead to uh, the emergence of novel psychoactive substances again or they may uh, lead to the emergence of more potent derivatives and of course more importantly precipitated withdrawal symptoms there's been some recent changes to the legislation about um, the, the misuse of, of, of drug substances and I understand that the Home Secretary has, has approved the recommendations from the Advisor Council on Misuse of Drugs. What are those changes and, and what are the implications for, for pharmacy? So there has been some proposed measures by the Department of Health and, um, and Social Care and Home Office that were submitted to ACMD for review and to submit to the Home Secretary. And those measures uh, involve uh, some enabling matters for, for pharmacists. So, for example, enabling pharmacists to supply controlled drugs without prescriptions, but this is within like a, a restricted framework, so only for, for example, for people with ongoing treatment. Also, uh, there was a measure on uh, extending the serious shortage protocol to include scheduled drugs, schedules two, three, four, part one of the misuse of drugs regulations. Uh, 2001, and also um, enable pharmacists to have the choice of varying the frequency of dispensing of an installment prescription. Again, this was proposed within a very restricted framework. Uh, so, for example, uh, if anything, the pharmacist should be consulting the, the doctor or the prescriber or the prescribing service uh, to ensure that this is uh, something that they can do. Of course, these measures are not without risks associated to them, because many of the pharmacists, for example, may be practicing outside of the scope of their daily practice. Uh, there is a very high risk of drug misuse and diversion. Uh, also, if we think about patients themselves, knowing that this, for example, has been already activated, they may exercise some pressures uh, on the prescribers or, or the pharmacists. And therefore, it is very important to understand that this will have uh, a lot of implications on pharmacists. And in all cases, pharmacists have the competence um, and they know when to to practice within the limits of their competence of, and this is what they do every day so they have to do rigorous id checks they have to ensure that the patient is in ongoing treatment if they're not sure they don't have enough information they have to uh, consult a prescriber and uh, also like follow good controlled drugs governance and all the various sops and ensure that if the patient has missed for example up to three doses they have to escalate uh, as in the normal situation it's worth adding to that that when this legislation well hopefully when it comes in that there will be some hopefully some robust guidance provided alongside that and we know that that's already in in development i guess it's to be clear however that whilst this legislation is being um looks like it's it's coming through there's a difference between it being in existence and uh, being switched on essentially activated for use in in practice obviously we've had some time delay in this actually coming to fruition at any rate there's some questions in there about whether this will be activated at, you know, in terms of geographically, how that will be determined. And it remains unclear as to when that switch on will actually come into effect. Um, and hopefully that will be sooner rather than later. 
and not waiting until services are truly failing before that actually happens. So first of all, when you mean activated, so my, my assumption is this could be Matt Hancock or the Home Secretary standing up and saying, we now believe there's a problem in, say, Dorset, for example, and we now need to implement this, this legislation for, for, say, three months. Is that what you mean by activation, Ros? Yeah, and just being clear about what that looks like and, um, you know, the process and the time frame for that, because we have services in need now. Yes, we've made a lot of changes to the way that we're um, providing specialist services, but we need some of these things to come into place now. We, we continue to experience incidents across the sector. And by having this legislation change, not just made, but actually activated and being able to use it in our clinical practice will make a significant difference to client care. And I think um, particularly regarding pharmacists being able to um, just make changes to instalments and um, being able to issue without um, the kind of hard copy wet signature prescriptions in front of them. Okay. And Amira, what's your view? I think it really depends on the current situation of drug shortage as well, like whether the the government is waiting for an actual shortage to affect all services before they activate it, or whether they would like um, to, to increase the flexibility to enable continuity of patient care and supply of medicines, because this is really key. It is very important that the treatment and 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 services are not disrupted and there is continuity in the treatment and supply of medicines in this cohort. So a key message I've understood is that these are really uh, quite significant changes in, in drug legislation in this area of substance misuse and, and the infrastructure is laid down automatically activated and if it is to be activated it can be done in a geographical and in a very, in a very focused manner. Bearing in mind what you've just said, what support can we provide to pharmacists? What's, what support can we do? I, I think it's important to, uh, first of all, educate and train pharmacists to ensure that they are very clear about how to implement the legislation once activated. And simple um, messages that pharmacists can, as the as frontline staff, to, to to give to people who use drugs. So, for example, advice on uh, how to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and, um, in general, uh, pharmacists are very well placed in to, to reduce harm uh, among this group, to refer as appropriate if they see any mental health deterioration, for example, or um, response to treatment, which is deteriorating, for example. Uh, to, uh, to address stigma, we still need to make sure that those people are going to be able to access treatment, uh, to make sure that they are going to be able to access support if they um, suffer from any precipitated withdrawal uh, symptoms. Um, they also need to be vigilant to reduce misuse and diversion because we don't want to boost the market from prescription drugs if we start to give uh, larger amounts to take home. An important point to mention is to, um, for example, to learn from other countries. So, so for example, in Germany, they, they've done like they've taken an, uh, a pragmatic approach, looking at um, which patients are stable, which ones are not stable, and then they started to see which ones can, um, for example, for, for whom it, it can be safe to take larger amounts of drugs to take home. Also in New York, uh, they have assigned 5,000 pharmacies to to do COVID-19 testing. Um, so that, that can be something that pharmacists uh, can do as well. But something I would like to mention now is drug checking and how drug checking can be a very important tool in harm reduction. 
And what does drug checking mean? Drug checking means people who are using drugs who are not going to stop using street drugs. If we are able to check what they are taking, we are going to be able to tailor our harm reduction. We are going to be able to address those risks which are going to be uh, um, surrounding us. We will be able to raise awareness and uh, get intelligence information in real time about drug trends uh, that are currently taking place. And I think that's important to echo back around thinking about the support we provide for pharmacists because when we do get um, information about maybe new trends that we're seeing, um, things for them to be more vigilant about, that communication really becomes key and again like you've outlined Amira, doing that in a timely um, fashion. But from a, a practical operational perspective, I think there is something more um, broadly about having robust you know, communication with our community pharmacy colleagues in particular. You know, we've got some really great working um, with with our community pharmacy colleagues, but also working with them to help us get out things like safe storage boxes, to, um, take home naloxone provision. Um, I totally appreciate the pressures that our community pharmacist colleagues are under and also from a payment perspective so um, at Humankind we are um, going to pay our community pharmacist colleagues um, for supervised consumption during this acute COVID um, period of time regardless of whether or not they've even been able to provide that intervention because we appreciate everything that they're currently experiencing but also as an, an acknowledgement of the valued role that they play in terms of the treatment of people with substance misuse issues as well. If we think that, for example, in the situation where our heroin, for example, is is going to be scarce, and as happened in the past, we're not sure, but as happened in the past, uh, we started to see fentanyl derivatives, which are far more potent, very easy to smuggle, maybe sent by post. And this is where drug check-in for users, so they can self-check using disposable uh, kits uh, where they can check drugs before using them just to ensure that we are not going to get soaring numbers of overdoses and harms from these drugs. In America, what was killing people was fentanyl because it's so potent. And perversely, if there's a lot of heroin, the death rate drops down and if there's not enough heroin, they use substitutes. So I think I think that's a very important point you, you both made. And it's also great to see humankind supporting community pharmacy roles. Okay, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Sarah Cahill. Um, so my first question is probably geared to more towards Roz. So I'm just wondering what support can be given to prescribing services as a result of all of these changes that have currently been made? Okay, well, I think, um, well, as with a lot of other sectors as well, you know, our, our budgets um, have certainly, you know, the funding that's available has really been hit in recent recent years. So I think having adequate financial support is is a, is really significant for us at this time. Um, so the cost of transporting, you know, people, scripts, medicines, you know, having to use the post more, the costs of PPE, the, the access we've had to it, let alone um, the cost where we haven't been able to, to get the, the free access that perhaps others have has been really challenging. There is uh, some money has been announced, I think, this week, but it's not ring fenced and it will be determined locally. So that will continue to be a challenge for us. The other thing in that is obviously we don't currently have access to EPS to be prescribing services. And I think that would make a massive difference for us. I, I really can't emphasize enough if we were able to do you know, our, our blue FP10 MDA instalment prescriptions um, and even having access to that interface um, would make a fantastic difference as well. I think 
some of the challenges that we've experienced has been where perhaps blanket directives have been sent out by community pharmacy headquarters to cease supervised consumption or where closures have um, happened um, with no notice haven't always been very helpful Um, and actually that's where our local relationships with our community colleagues have really come into their own. So, you know, we've had people go above and beyond. So if if they've got the appropriate PPE, um, like the layout of the premises has allowed, some of them have still been able to provide supervised consumption, you know, which which has a, a really valued um, valued input there. Conversations and, and continuing with those local relationships that we've got with our community pharmacies colleagues really come into their own. My next question is, what safeguards have been put in place given that some patients will now be self-medicating at home? So I I think this is where I'd echo about where we've had a lack of notice um, to be able to make changes and adequately risk assess people has been really important because, you know, that's an absolute priority for us. Um, We have um, looked to liberalise dispensing arrangements wherever we, we can. But I would argue, you know, with, with all of this, then there needs to try to be you know, opt- optimistic about silver linings in that, in that probably speaking nationally and more broadly, have people who have been on supervised consumption and, and more restrictive dispensing re- re- regimes for longer than perhaps they needed to be. So this has really provided a bit of an impetus and an opportunity to look at arrangements that are currently in place. So I think that's a real positive there. I think some of the challenges that we're seeing, the increased domestic violence, for example, people being put in more vulnerable situations um, and perhaps, you know, and that outreach work does become more difficult, you know, in partnership with other organisations, becomes even more essential during this time as well. I've mentioned already around um, things like increasing the provision of take-home naloxone and safe storage boxes, um, and again, sometimes use it, you know, with the assistance of our community pharmacy colleagues to get that out there, again, highlights the importance of that. That is actually quite good that actually some people are getting that time to review and see if it is possible that they can be unsupervised. Um, what measures have you taken in your practice to maintain continuity of service delivery? You know, each one of our services has their own bespoke um, kind of emergency business continuity plans, um, and that'll be tailored down to what they're able to deliver. Um, that is um, kind of the work, working documents, working plans that evolve as the situation has evolved. So uh, liberalisation of dispensing regimes are, I've kind of already mentioned. Um, we're obviously having to move to increasing um, provision of remote consultations, for example. But again, we've seen our DNA rates have has significantly gone down. We're finding that people are being able to engage with us in, in that different way, but, but we're having some really positive outcomes as well. We are having to look at how we can more innovatively offer, um, for example, needle syringe provision and offering what I describe as kind of a, a click and collect and, and postal delivery services, um, both for needle syringe provision, but for take home naloxone as well. So we're going to have we are thinking more creatively about how we can continue to offer those services. Um, our priorities have been about getting new people, you know, new starts, new, new assessments um, to make sure that there are no waiting lists um, and to get those individuals into treatment um, as quickly as we can. And we're certainly seeing that that's working well to date. For our listeners who, who are maybe not experts, DNA rates, can you explain what they are? 
So this is where people have not attended appointments, so when they haven't showed up. So it's, you know, and those numbers we have actually seen decline. We have been able to assertively engage with people, albeit in a in a different way, you know, whether that's telephone consultations or things like um, Skype and WhatsApp and Zoom and things like that, not just for prescribing consults, but also thinking about how we're delivering um, like the psychosocial interventions, which is a massive part of what treatment services offer so that we can offer either one to one or even in group settings, um, looking at how we can deliver that. And obviously medicine shortages we're all aware of. And have you experienced many of these issues? I think we've been very fortunate that to date we haven't had a significant large-scale issue with medicines shortages but I think a lot of that was at a national level we've had some really proactive conversations both with manufacturers um, but with um, Public Health England for example and, um, and the Department of Health too, um, to make sure that those conversations are continuing. So where we were expecting um, maybe shifts in, in prescribing practice, perhaps more buprenorphine being used, for example, and naloxone levels, um, we're aware that there have been some glitches, um, perhaps more so at, with wholesalers, but we haven't had any large scale issues to this point. And I think that's because we've been so proactive in, in trying to manage that. I think um, one of the challenges we are expecting to come up is around um, Nixoid, so that's the intranasal naloxone. So we are expecting a shortage of that to come up. But again, we're working proactively with the manufacturers. Um, and again, this has been done you know, at, at a national level to see what they may be able to put in place um, on practical issue to help minimise um, the impact of that. So my last question, Amira, you mentioned before about the um, examples of what other countries doing, like Germany. Can you explain to, to our listeners what other lessons or best practices we can, we can learn from other countries which would help this population of, of individuals? As Rose mentioned previously, services, uh, service delivery has massively changed over the last few weeks uh, because of the pandemic. And a lot of consultations, for example, are not face-to-face -face anymore and are uh, online or via telephone consultations. But other countries have opted for different uh, types of whether service delivery or reaching out for patients who are prescribed or non-prescribed. And therefore, we can learn from those experiences. So some countries, for example, like Greece, they were handing out uh, hand sanitizers, face masks, and they opened uh, permanent output uh, services. They were also given wipes and disinfectants, and they developed uh, leaflets in different languages to make sure that they can reach out for different people. Other countries, they have, uh, for example, uh, developed like stationary and mobile harm reduction centers, uh, again, um, delivering um, via postal orders, uh, for example, uh, different COVID support uh, items like lean syringes and needles and wipes and, uh, and sanitizers. Um, it's also important to know that some countries uh, provided some food as well, and um, the telephone consultations uh, were trying to target 
target people for different um, reasons, whether to put them in treatment, but also to monitor them at the beginning of treatment, to give them access to peer workers, social workers, uh, doctors, psychologists. And in uh, with regards to the amount of drugs to take home, some countries opted for given uh, one week only, or some countries gave uh, one to two weeks, but France gave the most, up to one month uh, supply. Some countries like Denmark opted for uh, short statements that can be seen by users and that can reduce harm. Uh, and these are things like uh, take care, don't share. Uh, and, and Ros, any insights you can provide? Yeah, and I, I think I'd say um, beyond just Europe as well, um, looking to other parts of the world. Um, so, for example, um, North America and Canada, you know, where they're able to provide things like crack pipes. So um, crack users can be notoriously difficult group to um, engage in treatment services. So it's a really useful engagement tool harm, you know, from a harm reduction perspective um, that some services are able to offer. Um, we're legally not currently able to do that in this country. Also drug consumption rooms, again, this is something that within the UK we currently cannot legally do. But there's increasing evidence um, supporting that providing someone with a, a drug consumption room, so a, a safe space in which they may take illicit substances um, as you know, providing lots more opportunity for reducing those drug related harms. And again, a, a good opportunity to engage people in to get them into treatment service, too. OK, so so I mean, I'll ask you what, what are the key stress points you'd like to share with our listeners today? So the key points are there is a group of people, people who use drugs, they are very vulnerable and they will need pharmacist support and the support of the prescribing services. It is very important to ensure that there is continuity of the services and continuity of drug supply. It's very important to understand the impact of the legislation, uh, the changes to the legislation once activated and the impact and implications on pharmacists uh, and how to support them to implement those uh, changes uh, effectively. Uh, thank you. And Roz, what's your take-home messages? I think it's to highlight that people who use substances are a highly vulnerable group at the best of times, but even more so right now, that pharmacists offer you know, a really key role in the treatment and support of those individuals. And a, a thank you as well, actually, to those in particular our community pharmacy colleagues who continue to do what they do at this really tough time. But also to highlight, yes, there's legislation change um, thought to be coming into effect, but there is confusion around what that actually means. It's yet to be switched on, as we described earlier. So the sooner that we're actually able to implement and use this, uh, this change, the better, really. Um, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I'd like to thank you both for spending your time today and give your insights in this very this fascinating, complicated area of substance use. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.